Matthew chapter 27 this morning and I wonder uh, as uh, it was being read if you noticed that there are at least four miracles that happen uh, during uh, that short short reading, uh, four miracles and this morning I've got a simple proposition uh, and, and that is that the miracles of the cross show us the meaning of the cross. The miracles of the cross show us the meaning of the cross. Uh, have a look, see if you can see the miracles uh, in, the, in the passage as you have it open in front of you, Matthew chapter 27. The first miracle is that the sun was darkened in verse 45 as Jesus hung on the cross. The second uh, in verse uh, 51 at the, at the first half that, that the curtain in the temple was torn in two. Uh, There's a third miracle there in uh, also verse 51. Uh, There was an earthquake. It says the earth was shaken and the rocks were split again in in verse 51. And finally, uh, in verse 52, there was another miracle that uh, the uh, tombs were opened and the dead were raised. So four miracles that uh, point us to the meaning of the cross. So, so let's look at the first miracle in verse 45, that, that the sun, as Jesus hung there, the sun was darkened. Have a look at verse 45. It says, from noon on, the middle of the day, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Noon. So Jesus was nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. in the morning and for three hours until noon it was light and then in the middle of the day at noon until 3 p.m. for three hours, middle of the day, it was pitch black. Why? Why was the sun darkened in the middle of the day? Well, John, the writer of uh, the Gospel of John, uh, tells us, if you remember, who Jesus is. He, he says in John 1, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. He's talking about Jesus. The light shines in the darkness, and later it says, He's the true light that gives light to everyone, and he was coming into the world. But now on the cross, the light is being snuffed out. The light has been snuffed out, and so darkness covers the whole world. A one commentator I was reading says, it's as if the natural world dresses itself in dark clothing and goes into mourning, for here the human world has committed its most heinous crime. This is the Son of God, the light of the world, who came to bring light into the darkness. And you contemplate this Friday, his sufferings, how they beat him, the light of the world, how they mocked him, how they covered him with shame and insulted him. We consider how uh, they stripped him naked and they made him carry his cross. They forced on him a crown of thorns. They put a purple robe on his body to mock him as if he was the king. The son of God, the light of the world. We consider how they pierced his hands and nailed them to the cross and how they nailed his feet to the cross and how they pierced his side and how then they finally strung him up for the whole world to see so that he would be covered in shame. Uh, If you want to see the blackness of the human heart, you need look no further than the cross the maker of the universe, the son of God. The cross for us has become kind of a 
piece of jewellery, a piece of glamour. Not so in the first century world. John Stott says that Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion except in extreme cases of treason. Cicero from the first century, in, in one of his speeches, condemned the cross as a most cruel and disgusting punishment. A little later, he declared, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime... To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. You see, the crucifixion wasn't just about destroying Jesus. The the crucifixion was about destroying his memory. Uh, Today we have this thing called cancel culture, right? Uh, The whole point of cancel culture is that when someone's words or actions have been deemed offensive or dangerous, that that person should be ostracised, boycotted, shunned. Or in the words of Jesus, you might say, they should be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. No one has ever ever been cancelled like Jesus was cancelled. No one ever before and no one ever after. It's interesting, actually, because that phrase, thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, note the phrase, outer darkness, and the sky became dark, that's a phrase that the Lord Jesus uses three times in the Gospel of Matthew, that exact phrase. And he uses it for people who have rejected God, turned their backs on God. He says, this is what will happen for those who reject God and turn their backs on him. And yet here we have the one man who obeyed God who loved God, the one man of whom God said at his baptism, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And what's happening here on the cross? He's being thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what does the miracle of darkness say about the meaning of the cross? It tells us that out of his great love for us, Jesus endured the torments of hell so that we could have everlasting light and everlasting life. Everyone who turns away from their sins and looks to Jesus will not perish but will have everlasting life. That's the first miracle of the cross. The sun was darkened. The second miracle of the cross in verse 50 was that the curtain was torn In two. Have a look, verse 50. Then Jesus cried again with a loud voice and breathed his last. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, remember, the temple was the meeting place with God, Yahweh. But it's interesting because uh, this theme of uh, something blocking the way comes up in all kinds of literature. So you think about um, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and it was the doors of Durin that blocked the way into Khazad-dûm. You could only enter in with a secret code. It it comes up in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe so that it was only through a mysterious wardrobe in some abandoned room that anyone was able to enter into the magical land of Narnia. 
Or in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, you have this three-headed giant dog called Fluffy who's guarding the way and blocking the entrance into the underground chambers. You see, all of these stories are picking up on the archetypal and true story of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve who lived in a perfect paradise called the Garden of Eden until they ate from the fruit that God had said If you eat from this fruit, you shall surely die. And they ate from that fruit. And the final verse of Genesis 3 that tells the story of Adam and Eve in the perfect garden says, after God drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim, that's an angel, a mighty angel, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way back to the tree of life. So what's it saying? It's saying simply, because of your sin, you can't come in. That's, and that's exactly what the curtain in the temple was about. You see, it was guarding the way home. It was guarding the way back into paradise, into the Garden of Eden, the Holy of Holies. And it was guarding the way on pain of death. That's what the flaming swords were about, going in every which way. Because of your sin, you can't come in. In fact, those same cherubim that were um, blocking the way back into the garden, they were embroidered onto these beautiful, massive curtains in the temple. When God gave the design for the temple, he had these same cherubim that blocked the way in the garden, blocking the way into the Holy of Holies, embroidered on it. And this temple was 18 meters high. Try to imagine. Massive curtain. It was nine metres wide, and get this, it was nine centimetres thick, about the width of my hand. Have you ever seen a curtain that was nine centimetres thick? That's how massive this curtain was with the cherubim that was blocking the way into the Holy of Holies. And we're told in this story that as Jesus hung on the cross, when Jesus breathed his last, the curtain was torn in two, this massive curtain from top to bottom. As if to say, paid in full. Your sin is paid in full. So what does the miracle of the curtain torn in two mean? In 1944... C.S. Lewis gave a lecture to a bunch of students at Oxford about the universal human longing for all of us to be part of the inner ring. Here's what he says. He says, I believe that in all our lives, one of the most dominant elements is this desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside. What many young people want, and especially intellectuals and artists, is that sacred little attic or studio, the heads bent together and the delicious knowledge that we, we four or five huddled beside this stove are the people who really know. He goes on in his lecture, unless you take measures to prevent it, this desire is going to be one of the chief motives of your whole life from the first day on which you enter your profession until the day when you're too old to care. But the good news of the gospel, the good news of the curtain torn in two is that Jesus has taken every measure on the cross for us on pain of crucifixion, on pain of his bloody death so that we can be welcomed in and have those deep desires fulfilled. 
so that we can say, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, thou mine inheritance, thou and always, thou and thou only the king of my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. That's the miracle of the curtain torn in two. We have been welcomed in by the high king of heaven and into his embrace. The second miracle is the curtain torn in two. The third miracle is in verse 51. Have a look. It's the earthquake. It says, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. It was a miracle. Why was there an earthquake when Jesus hung on the cross? What does that miracle mean? Well, earthquakes bear all kinds of um, meaning and significance in the Bible. So in the Old Testament, uh, it says, uh, the mountains quake before him. That's Yahweh. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. So why do the mountains quake before him? Does God have something against mountains? No. You think about the most immovable, most immense, most majestic and immovable object you can think of, especially in those days, it was a mountain. Mountains are so seemingly immovable, but what this is saying is that compared to God, when God comes into the presence, they're like wax. They melt away. Heaven and earth will fade away, Jesus says, but my word will stand forever. When God comes down, the mountains melt. And so in the Bible, an earthquake points to the presence and the power of God in our midst. It means, if you think about it, though, an earthquake is a sign to us that the world is falling apart. Everything is falling apart. Do you know why everything is falling apart? The reason the world is falling apart, the reason our bodies are breaking down, it's because of the weight of God's justice on our sin, on our rebellion. You know know how when a football team or a sports team just kind of falls apart when when it's under bad management, when there's a bad manager, and and everything just falls apart on that team? Well, Well, that's what's happened with the world. What's happened in the world is that the reason the world is falling apart is is because we've rejected the manager, the maker, and we've decided that we can run things on our own. The world is under bad management. That's why everything is falling apart, because we've rejected the maker and the manager of all things. And so the justice of God on sin is the reason everything is falling apart. But in that moment on the cross, it says the earth shook and the rocks were split. It was the weight of the justice of God on our sin. And it was all brought to bear and brought to focus on one man, Jesus. With terrifying and crushing weight, the justice of God came down upon one head, upon Jesus as he fell apart. And how heavy was that? Well, how heavy is the omnipotence of God? It all came down on Jesus on the cross. 
And because of Jesus, now we can say that I will never be shaken. By dying on the cross, by dying in our place, by being shaken to death. You see, he shook death to death. By his death, he broke death. And so what he's saying to us is because I was shaken by death, you can be utterly unshakable. Because I was shaken to death, you will never be shaken apart by death. He took it all on the cross so that we can be unshakable. The third, earth, the third miracle is that Jesus, uh, that there was an earthquake. The third miracle, the fourth miracle. Have a look in verse 52. It says the dead were raised. The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. After his resurrection, they came out of the tombs and entered the holy city and appeared to many. I love this verse because all of the other gospel writers, they wait for the resurrection bit. Uh, They leave that to Sunday, but not Matthew. Matthew is like, no, it's already begun. This is a taste of things to come. Jesus' death has grave opening power. Jesus' death is a death conquering death. It's already begun. By his death, he has broken death and opened up the grave. You see, the death of Jesus 2,000 years ago in history, it broke the ended the old order, the reign of death, and it opened up a new reign of everlasting life. And it began on the cross by his death-conquering death. So as we wrap up this morning, not only is Jesus' death strong enough to make darkness cover the whole land so that we could be filled with everlasting life. And not only is Jesus' death strong enough to tear that massive curtain in the temple in two so that we could be ushered in to the high king of heaven. Not only is Jesus' death strong enough to shake the whole world so that by his death we would never be shaken but last forever and ever also, Jesus' death is able to open up the graves because it was a death-conquering death so that we might have everlasting life. Jesus promised that he would come back one day. He said in John 5.28, Do not be astonished at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in their graves, this is Jesus speaking, will hear his voice and will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, Jesus says, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Those who refuse to take up the offer of him being condemned in our place, him being cast out to the outer darkness in our place. Brothers and sisters, are you ready for that day? How can you be ready? Well, there's only one way. There's only one way that you can be ready. And the miracles of the cross are given to you as proof. The miracles of the cross are given to us as a sign, a sign pointing to the Lord Jesus who says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Today's called Good Friday. Because it's good for us. 
But it wasn't good for Jesus, as we see in the story. But Jesus went through it because of his great love for us. Out of great love for us, he went through the cross. Uh, The Apostle Paul uh, talks about the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. Yes, it was for me. This is not some general death for the whole world. No, the Apostle Paul says he loved me and he gave himself up for me. Because he loved us. So I want to take a few moments this morning to reflect on God's great love for us by watching a video to reflect on how he loved me and how he died for me and it was my sin that held him there. As it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. It was love that held him there. Let's take a moment to reflect on God's great love for us.